This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. Well... We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. My name is Clara Cook and joining me today is my fellow co-host, Duncan Barrett. Hello, Duncan. How are you? I'm good, Clara. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Are you excited to talk about today's subject? I am very much. I'm always excited to talk about our subjects on primitive <laughs> culture. Although um, I have to say this subject seems to be a return to rather dark territory for you and me. We seem to keep heading back into this rather grim uh, aspect of, of history and, and Star Trek's engagement with it, which is we, we're looking at the Holocaust again, basically another aspect <laughs> of the Holocaust. We're so grim. Um, but I think, uh, you know, there's a lot to, I know there's a lot to talk about, about that subject. Um, and certainly I'm, I'm looking forward to what we're going to draw out in this episode. So like the last time that we talked about this sort of subject and possible choices, today's topic is also another compelling impossible type of choice. Today, we're going to ask the question, just how far would you go to help someone who is oppressed and in danger? So would you risk your own safety to hide them from that danger um, if you had to hide them at great risk to yourself and to the people around you how would you be able to cope with the responsibility of holding someone's life in your hands and in this episode of primitive culture we're going to examine the star trek voyager episode counterpoint and its relationship to the story of anne frank and her family so counterpoint is episode 10 of season 5 of voyager it was directed by les landau and written by michael taylor it's an episode in which janeway and the the crew of voyager are traveling through a a space that belongs to an alien race called the Devore. Um, and the Devore are highly suspicious of telepaths. And so they are basically trying to eradicate telepaths from their space and their society by putting them in detention centers. And they suspect that Janeway is hiding or harboring some telepaths on her ship. And so they keep stopping the Voyager and doing routine inspections of Voyager. And that's where the episode starts, is with another routine inspection of the Devore of Voyager. So I wanted to know, what did you think of this episode? I really love this episode. I think I think it's a great episode. It's not, I suppose, one of the kind of big Voyager episodes. It's it's not big explosions and battles with the Borg. It's not kind of uh, high concept science fiction. It's kind of, it's quite a small story in a way. It feels like quite a sort of personal story, but I think it, re- it works really well. Um, partly, I think, because the way that the romance is played between Janeway and Kashik, the alien uh, captain or investigator or whatever he is, the kind of head space Nazi uh, is is played very interestingly. I think Kate Mulgrew does a great job. I think the kind of the mystery of what exactly is going on, which of them is is playing each other, you know, who really knows what's going on, where is the bluff and who's bluffing and so on. All of that kind of comes across really well and, and gives it a lot of 
a lot of kind of uh, grit and, and texture that that otherwise might not be there. And, and also that's why I think Kate Mulgrew many times has said this is her favourite episode of Voyager in the whole seven season run. And you can kind of understand why, because it's a great Janeway episode. But um, apparently I, I was interested reading in some of the background behind this episode. It wasn't originally a Janeway episode at all. It was actually, surprise, surprise, a Seven of Nine episode. <laughs> and for once they actually took the decision to to remove Seven of Nine from the centre of things and to focus on someone else, in this case, the captain. But it's kind of interesting, I think, you know, we're looking at this episode in terms of Anne Frank, in terms of the Holocaust, in terms of that Second World War context. But apparently the original pitch for this episode, which came from a couple of freelancers. Uh, it was called The Hiding, and it was basically about a group of alien refugees or stowaways who were hiding out in Voyager's landing struts, so in those little legs that come down when the ship's going to, to land or take off. So much more a kind of modern sort of rip from the headlines story, you know, people stowing away on aeroplanes and, and taking those very risky journeys and so on. But apparently it was Nick Sagan, who was the story editor, who who wanted to bring this pitch sort of into the writer's room, wanted to bring this pitch to Brandon Braga and the kind of head honchos on Voyager. And he said he felt he needed a hook that would kind of, you know, really make them sit up at the idea of this pitch. And, and the hook that he came up with was, well, we're doing the Diary of Anne Frank in space. And that was what sort of sold it to Brandon Braga. That was what kind of sold it to those in charge. And so then they kind of developed the story from there. So I think it's kind of interesting that it it is you know it's an instance of a story that went from being in a sense very contemporary in its inspiration i imagine uh, just given that brief description to yet again focusing on the second world war and i mean you know we joked kind of that that you know we keep coming back to the holocaust but the fact is voyager keeps coming back to the holocaust probably of all the star trek series even more so than deep space 9 voyager seems to be slightly obsessed with the holocaust they keep coming back to these kind of these themes and these kind of stories and 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 so on I just think it's kind of interesting that this is yet another example of where they they kind of not explicitly but but there is definitely a clear parallel between the Anne Frank story and the story of of people being sheltered from the Nazis and these these kind of space Nazis who are who are out to get these telepaths. The Devor are definitely space Nazis. They're meticulous, they're cultured, they're elitist, they have um very sort of particular ideas about who's worthy and who isn't. They're willing to break all, all sorts of universal moral codes to further their own society or what they believe is furthering their own society. I would say as soon as K- Kashik comes onto the Voyager and starts playing Marla, he's definitely like a stereotype of a space Nazi, you know? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, I actually really like this episode partly because for all the things that you've mentioned but also like you said the romance aspect of it i do question whether or not it's really about love i think it's much more about attraction and trust and exploitation Mm -hmm. both of them are kind of exploiting each other both of them sort of feeling each other out to see if they trust each other it actually their conversations with each other and the way that they had this sort of banter back and forth especially the way kate mulgrew plays it reminded me of old witty black and white movies of like the 40s that were actually set during the war. In fact, some of the lines reminded me a little bit of Casablanca, something like that, you know, or to to have and to have not, where there's people who are sort of double crossing each other and there is something wider at stake. There is like the future of the freedom of Europe during World War II at stake, or there is Mm -hmm. a whole bunch of Jews hiding in a cupboard somewhere and their lives are at stake. Or in the case of Voyager, it's the telepaths who are being hidden in the transporter. It's interesting the way that the episode is written 
right from the beginning they it's very cleverly written they don't actually explain who the devore are in the beginning there's no sort of exposition and none of the actual characters are telling you anything initially it's more just their reactions to the inspection so their reactions right away you can tell this is one inspection in a long line of inspections they've been constantly boarded the way that they're being scanned you know the way that one of the devore soldiers scans neelix and kind of looks them up and down to the fact that Kashik goes straight, beams straight into the ready room and sits in Captain Janeway's chair and touches her belongings. And it's that kind of attitude that soldiers of an authoritarian regime, of a dictatorship, act. They feel like they have, they can just go in and take your property, touch your property, dictate the rules to you, decide what you think, decide what you're going to say in a way that they have complete control, authoritarian control over your lives. And this is something that I thought about when looking at Frank was how when she finally was discovered and her family were discovered and everybody that was hiding with her, how the Gestapo just kind of went in and just marched them out unceremoniously. Mm. You know, it's this idea that they don't have to justify themselves. They don't have to ask you to do anything. It's just a given that you have to follow their orders. And the, the Devorah are very much like that. I thought that the way they used derogative terms about the Voyager crew, they called them Gahare, which is a derogative term for foreigner or stranger. You know you're in trouble whenever a society comes up with a derogative term for someone that's different. That's the first step towards atrocities, basically. As soon as you can start mm-hmm. labeling somebody by a sort of anonymous name, you're taking away their identity as a person or as a human being. And then eventually later on down the line, that does lead to something like the Holocaust. So I thought that was really interesting. The first thing they say is Gahare vessel, you know, and Kashuk calls them mm-hmm. Gahare. And Janeway kind of teases him about that later, like, mm, it's not so good. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. No, I think it's interesting. I mean, when you say, you know, about the Gestapo marching in or whatever, I mean, I think they're, you know, in... In many ways, you're right that the, the the kind of Nazi connection is is sort of put up there on the screen. I mean, there's, there's also the uniforms. There's discussion of of uniforms, and he makes this joke. You know, maybe you like me better in uniform or whatever. Um, and they've got these quite sort of fascistic style kind of space uniforms. But there's also you know the kind of ordinary foot soldiers are you know are basically thugs. They're smashing the doctor's experiments. They're being quite brutal. They're being quite rough. Then you've got the guy in charge who's a bit more cultured and a bit more of a snob and a bit more of that kind of that kind of stereotype. And I think you're right that definitely there's something to this episode that has the feel of a kind of old black and white movie. Partly all the classical music, of course, makes it feel more more old fashioned. Partly Kate Mulgrew's acting, which to be honest, Kate Mulgrew's Certainly her presentation of Catherine Janeway has always been a little bit in that kind of slightly heightened, slightly mannered kind of Catherine Hepburn kind of style performance. And there's a wonderful bit right at the end where Kashik says to her, you're, you, you fed us false readings or something. And she has this line, well, isn't that the theme of this evening? And the way she does it is so kind of, I mean, it's quite camp. It's quite, it's not really how you would expect Catherine Janeway to do it in a sense, but it's this kind of teasing, kind of slightly coy kind of, it's a very different side of her character, but it's brilliant because it completely puts him in his place. But, again, in this quite sort of, it has that sort of old-fashioned feel to it. So I think that's definitely part of the way that they kind of develop this story and part of what gives it a real kind of charm and a real kind of beauty as well, because there is something quite beautiful about it. There is something about the music. There is something about this, you know, these these passionate ideas, like you say, like those kind of, you know, brief encounter or one of these films about kind of 
this sort of intensity of emotion, these two people coming together and can they trust each other? And I think, it, you know, she means what she says at the end. You know, if he had turned out to be genuine, she then her offer would have been genuine. Do you know what I mean? There was so. So, yes, you're right. It is primarily an attraction more than maybe a romance. But at the same time, she wants to believe in him, even though she knows that probably he's lying. And in fact, she turns out to be correct. And the fact that she's able to kind of play both sides of that. I mean, that Janeway is able to play both sides of that as well as Mulgrew being able to play both sides of that, I think is quite amazing that she can kind of not commit exactly emotionally, but sort of but go, go that far in a sense with this desire for, for it to turn out to be real with this guy, while at the same time being completely on top of things, outmanoeuvring him at every stage, having a plan in place, you know, knowing exactly what she's doing. It's a, it's a, it's a great Janeway episode. You can see why Kate Mulgrew loves it. I think that what you say about Kashik is kind of right as well, because Prax, who's the second in command, is much more of a stereotypical kind of like totalitarian soldier, you know, a sort of uh, commander. He goes in, he's all about efficiency. He's all about inspecting the crew and making them, pe- making them pay the penalty for um, smuggling and helping the telepaths. Um, whereas Kashik is a more dimensional character. He's got different sides to him. I mean, he is, he, I mean, he, he could definitely be a, a, a realistic romantic re- possibility for Janeway if he didn't turn out to be double crossing her. So, and she is lonely, you know, I mean, she can't really have a relationship with anyone else like on the, on the ship with her crew because she's the captain. So, you know, he's her, he's an option really for her if he like wasn't a Nazi, basically. <laughs> so <laughs> that's kind of a problem. <laughs> because she's sort of implying that, you know, all can be forgiven. And, you know, the fact that he has been a Nazi and he had, you know, he, he tells her this story about how he sent this little girl, you know, this is the real sort of Anne Frank moment. In a sense, he sent this little girl off to a camp where presumably she was killed. And so when he tells the story, it's like this was his moment of realising, you know, it was a sort of epiphany that he realised after that he couldn't go on doing this and he had to find some way to resist, in a sense, and to get away from it all. But then, in fact, later on, he says, no, actually, you know, I did have a bit of a wobble over that, but I realised that was the right thing to do. And, you know, this is necessary and we have to get rid of these people and they're danger to us and all this stuff. So, but I suppose I'm kind of curious, you know, say, say he... Say the offer had been genuine, say he had genuinely wanted to defect and he did really feel bad about what he'd done in the past. Would she, would the Voyager crew, would, would, would it be possible to get past that? I mean, can, can a Nazi just say, look, I'm sorry, I did the wrong thing and then it, all is forgiven? Or, you, you know, would she really have a relationship with someone who'd been sending children to their deaths only, you know, a few months previously? Or is that just a bit of a kind of, you know, fortunately, we we never quite have to see how that would play out because actually, you know, it would be a lot more complex and morally problematic, really, than than it kind of seems. I mean, just choosing to defect doesn't necessarily outweigh everything that you've done before that point. Well, that sounds like a storyline that's more in keeping with what Discovery is trying to do than what Voyager ever really tried to do. Voyager is much more episodic. Um, Discovery is much more mythic mm-hmm. has got much more of a mythic epic sort of cycle so if you think about tyler you know and all the things that tyler must have done as a klingon um the fact that he tried to kill burnham by strangling her which kind of puts a dampener on any relationship and then <laughs> you know and then, and then we're supposed to later on wonder if he can be reformed and if burnham can actually end up forgiving him in the end so that seems like a storyline that's might maybe I'm I'm sure that many Trek FM listeners are going to not like me for saying this, but that sounds like a storyline that maybe 
it's slightly too complex for Voyager. I'm not the biggest Voyager fan. And so sometimes I feel their mm-hmm. storytelling can be quite simplistic. They've got sort of complex, interesting themes, but they don't explore them enough. Uh, but then I under- imagine it's quite hard to mm. do that in the space of 50 minutes. So one of the earlier drafts of this episode actually had Janeway falling in love with one of the refugees, which mm. Mm. I think would have been an easier story to tell because the refugees, we already feel empathy and sympathy for, you know, they're innocent people. Mm. They're easy to get behind. And, you know, it'd be just a nice little romantic episode. And I assume the refugee would leave at the end and Jamie would be a little bit heartbroken Mm. and she'd have more of a compelling reason to hide them and keep them safe. If she was in love with one of them, the whole idea of this story that we, the whole idea of the actual story that aired, the actual episode is that Jamie doesn't really have a compelling reason other than being a humanitarian, to hide these telepaths. She has a compelling reason to hide Tuvok and Vorek, but she, because they're members of her crew who are telepathic, but she doesn't have a hugely compelling reason to hide telepaths from another alien race that she doesn't have any connection to, who are not going to help Voyager on its journey back to Earth. She's doing it, and the crew are doing it, because of their moral beliefs. And that's really important. So we're kind of, get, we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves here, because we're going to get onto that. But before we start examining like the humanitarian resistance that existed during World War II and that is kind of portrayed in this episode. You mentioned before that Anne Frank was one of the inspirations for this episode. So we should talk a little bit about the story of Anne Frank. And I mean, I'm I'm sure most people actually know who Anne Frank is and she doesn't need really any introduction, but she really was quite an exceptional person. If you read what Anne wrote, even at the tender age that she was, when she was a very young teenager, she actually is very insightful about human beings, about planet about tumultuous historical events that she's living through she was born in frankfurt in germany in 1929 and died at the age of 15 in bergen-belsen concentration camp in 1945 so one of the reasons why anne is not just another nameless victim of the holocaust but because we actually know who she is is because when she when it was she and her family um, were hiding in amsterdam during the war from 1942 to 1944 she kept a diary so we have her writings and her describing about being in hiding So she wasn't just hiding herself, it was also her parents and her sister and other work colleagues of her father's at the time. And they were hidden by work colleagues that her father had worked with, uh, who were part of his company. And it is an example of basically people hiding from an authoritarian and repressive regime that is hell-bent on exterminating. And all of Anne Frank's family and, and, and herself and all the people hiding with her were Jews. So that's why they were hiding, obviously. So... In relation to Anne Frank's story and her diary, do you feel that you saw strong parallels between Counterpoint and, and Anne Frank's story? Yeah, I mean, I hesitate to say it did it justice, just because I think, I mean, the stuff I like about Counterpoint, I like the fact that it, it's this great Janeway story and she has this romance with the space Nazi and, and is it a romance or isn't it a romance and so on. Of course, what's interesting about Anne Frank's story is that you're seeing it from the perspective of the people who are in hiding. And part of what's interesting about that story is is hearing about life within this the annex, they call it, this secret annex. Basically, they were hiding out in this kind of 
like a sort of secret section of, of the of the office building, right? That that you know people hopefully wouldn't realise was there, and, and the door at some point was hidden behind a bookshelf and so on to try and disguise it. And, and the kind of experience of being, you know, of living kind of not literally underground, but essentially living underground, you know, being cut off from society, being in hiding for that length of time. And we don't really get much of a sense of that in the Voyager episode. We don't get a sense of what it's like for Tuvok and Vorik uh, and, uh, and and these uh, aliens. Although we see them, you know, we see this group of refugees. We hear a little bit from their leader. We see, interestingly, again, to sort of draw the Anne Frank parallel, there's a lot of children among them. Um, and Neelix is in charge of kind of looking after these kids. But basically, whenever the Devor are around, they're hiding in the transporter buffer uh, so, so it's not like we could go into hiding with them because as far as we know there, there's no kind of existence within the transporter buffer they're sort of in this kind of liminal state in a way so i think it's i think it's an, I, I think counterpoint is a great episode i think it's interesting the way it kind of picks up on some of the ideas in Anne frank I, I suppose the idea that comes across the most strongly maybe aside from you know, this sort of general interest in space nazis and you know we get space nazis in star trek quite a lot generally we do get this sense very much of this kind of racist ideology underpinning it all you know in terms of the way that they talk about these telepathic races they talk about the kind of danger they represent you know in it with the jews it was the the money and the power that they supposedly had it kind of interested me one of the things that struck me is because this episode is so interesting music and uses so much music the two composers that both get used are marla and tchaikovsky and ironically, although we sort of think, oh, yes, it makes sense. The space Nazis are very cultured. They're very kind of sophisticated and so on. Mahler was Jewish. Mahler's music was banned during uh, the Third Reich in Germany. Tchaikovsky was Russian, therefore, you know, a Slavic person, therefore a kind of an, an untermensch, as the Germans would have said. So again, you know, both these composers whose music is is being woven into the episode actually are kind of almost examples of all the everything that the Nazis kind of repudiated one way or another and felt themselves superior to and kind of... And I suppose when we think about the Nazis, so there's that kind of racism directed towards people, but there's also that kind of, you know, burning books, uh, banning music, you know, the kind of cultural cultural clamping down of a fascist state, which also kind of ties into it. And I just think it's curious. I don't know whether this was deliberate, that the musicians that they chose are actually not musicians that the real Nazis would have approved of at all. There's almost a kind of undercount, almost a counterpoint, you might say, to the kind of ostensible story in those scenes. Well, before Anne actually goes into hiding, I mean, it does kind of link to that, because before Anne and her family do go into hiding, she does describe the various decrees, well, she describes it in her book while she's hiding, but she does, does describe the very de various decrees that she and her family have been forced to live under of all the things that the Jews cannot do in Amsterdam at the time. And one of them includes swimming in the sea, which is insane, mm. you know, like a natural body of water. And you're going to try and prevent a whole bunch of human beings from swimming in it. It just makes no sense at all. They can't own a pet. And one of the things that I noticed, I went to on a trip to Berlin last year, and one of the things we visited a bunch of museums, including the Topography of Terror, which I would recommend if anybody ever goes to Berlin, I'd really recommend it because it very clearly outlines, it's a free exhibition, and it very clearly outlines how the Nazi regime progressed and how things that started out relatively quite small eventually led to concentration camps and millions of people dying. One of the things they did point out in this, in this uh, exhibition was all the different decrees and how they were rolled out over the years. And some of them were quite small initially, you know, and so and then over time, there were more and more and more till eventually Jews were being deported. So 
it does kind of nice it i guess it's, it's kind of maybe an unconscious link but it, it is kind of a nice link that the idea is that first of all you stop people wearing a certain type of clothing or first of all you stop people owning a pet and then you stop them playing a certain type of music and then you stop them listening to that music altogether and then that music is never played and that book is never read and then those books are destroyed and then eventually you're sort of squeezing people's culture away from them and you're sort of squeezing their identity out and when eventually you've squeezed away the identity and you and you've erased who they are as people and who they are as a culture then it's very easy not to even see them as people and it also breaks the spirit of those people it breaks them down i think the idea that a, a bunch of teenage girls could go to the beach where there's a bunch of other teenage girls and one section of teenage girls could go swimming in the sea and the others couldn't because just because of accident of birth or because they had a particular religion in a way making those individuals feel so dehumanized that it, it can break their spirit and one of the things that's amazing about Anne Frank is that her spirit is never really broken you know in the entire time that she was mm -hmm. hiding and she was in the annex and despite all the terrible things that happened you know while she was i mean the, just the living with the constant fear of being discovered you know living in that cramped environment with a whole bunch of people that you may like to have dinner with or something but you maybe not necessarily want to live with 24/7 you know these weren't people she chose to live with mm. they were people that were all desperate and scared and frightened and together the tension of of always uh, possibly being discovered can lead to a lot of arguments and there was described as being a lot of stress for everybody living in this in that small environment there was a lot of arguments there was a lot of tension between people and something that isn't really described in the diaries but is something that i know that jews hiding did suffer from which is kind of reflected in counterpoint is the health hazards of hiding for a long period of time so in counterpoint the telepaths mm. are starting to face cellular degeneration or cellular problems for being hidden in the transporter for having their molecules spread out across the universe or whatever while they're being held mm. in suspension and you know, you know from the film The Pianist, which is also based on a true story, he, the, the man who's hiding, the pianist, actually does suffer health problems as a result of hiding. You can suffer from malnutrition, you can suffer from the lack of sunlight. If you're in a particularly cramped situation, you don't get enough exercise. Perhaps maybe you're not getting good enough diet because you can't have access to food. If you are ill and you are unwell, how are you going to get to a doctor? Everybody that you're relying on outside in the real world who's helping you hide and is giving you food is providing you with provisions and is keeping your secret that's always that's somebody who could be who could betray you or that is somebody who could be mm. arrested and could betray you through being tortured or being coerced into betraying you so you're putting your you're really putting your life in someone else's hands completely and you have no power you're powerless and Anne is powerless in this situation she was she had to her faith in other people and in the end sadly they didn't make it to the end of the war they were actually arrested and deported so in a sense i kind of i do think there are some there's some links with counterpoint it's not they're not direct close links like they're not like obvious but there are some links i think the idea that they're suffering um health problems from being in the transporter system is can be a link to mm. being squeezed into a very small annex <laughs> with a bunch of people <laughs> Definitely, definitely. I mean, I don't know that in the in Anne Frank's diary that you get a sense that physically any of them are particularly suffering. They are certainly suffering mentally. I mean, and 
she's actually surprisingly unsympathetic in some ways to the particularly the older women who are kind of a bit more panicky about it all i mean she seems to be quite maybe it's just the kind of confidence of youth or whatever she doesn't seem that scared or that anxious really but you know the the psychological impact of being living in hiding for that length of time is is quite significant i mean we might come on to talk a bit later about some other kind of real world situations in which things like this happen. But uh, I spoke to a guy a year or two ago whose father was a hairdresser in Jersey, in occupied Jersey. And he told me there there was quite a famous story of a Jewish lady who was hidden in a basement um, by a physiotherapist in Jersey. And, uh, and this guy said, cause his, his father was a hairdresser and he was, he was actually Swiss German, but he was very much against the Germans. The physiotherapist brought him in to cut this woman's hair. So he would go down into the basement every few months and give her a haircut just because, you know, even though she was never going outside, she wasn't going to see anyone. She was kind of living in the dark pretty much uh, on her own, but just psychologically they felt that for her to feel like she had a, a haircut and that she was kind of presentable kind of made it more bearable somehow living underground. And I think it's interesting when you're talking about the way that a regime like the Nazi regime tries to dehumanise people, it's also a kind of, there's a bit of a cyclic element to it because once you strip away people's ability to work, once you strip away their ability to earn money, once you say they're not allowed in certain places and so on, once you have these people who are then, you know, li- living in a basement or living in hiding or whatever, it's almost easier to see them as vermin, to see them as not real people because you have kind of removed their humanity by, well, as you say, bit by bit, stripping away how much they're able to engage with, you, you know, in human society and so on. I mean, literally, say, in the concentration camps. I found this quite striking. I don't know why it hadn't really occurred to me, but obviously because, you know, Anne Frank's diary ends shortly before they're, they're all taken away. And that's as, that's as far as the story goes in the diary. But I was just looking up online to find out a bit more about what happened to her and, and so on. And, you know, there are interviews with people who encountered her in the camps, who knew her in the camps and so on. And, so, and they describe her as being this very thin girl with, you know, with, of course, having her head shaved, something like that. You know, shaving people's heads, again, it sort of dehumanises them to an extent. It kind of, it's all part of, of the way of kind of treating them as things rather than people. But interestingly, from those accounts, again, you know, even in the concentration camps, there were people saying, well, she still had this real sort of positivity about her. There was something about her that sort of, despite those awful experiences, that it hadn't kind of crushed her spirit entirely. And I think you're right. That's one of the kind of amazing things about the diary as a kind of historical artifact. And the reason it's become so, you know, significant, so meaningful is, I mean, first of all, although she was only, you know, whatever, 14 or 15, she's a fantastic writer. I mean, she writes really well, but also just the there's something very ordinary about it. There's something about her kind of ordinary concerns, you know, squabbles with her mother, you know, this boy, does she like him or is she just, is it just because they're confined and, and, you know, having a sort of first romance and sort of going through puberty and all this kind of quite everyday stuff somehow, but, but written very well. It just, it, there is something quite crushing about it when you get to the end and you realize, you know, that this person has, has died only, I can't remember how many months later, but in early 1945, she died. Uh, not, she wasn't sent to the gas chamber, but she died of illness in one of the camps. And I suppose it just underscores the kind of total inhumanity of a regime that will, you know, obviously we know that. Obviously we know the, the you know, the millions of people who were killed and so on and how, and how awful that is. But I suppose there's something about just reading this account of a very relatable young person and thinking, you know, what kind of regime would snuff out that life? Do you know what I mean? And that kind of 
positivity and that kind of energy and that kind of you read about her plans for the future and the kind of life that she wants to live and the kind of work she wants to do and all these things and so i suppose that's one reason that this diary has acquired so much meaning is because it i guess when you're talking about dehumanizing people it absolutely rehumanizes the victims of the holocaust because it it puts a very relatable face on it by by putting you know this girl's face on it in a way and i know that some of the people who who knew anne frank uh and who you know had people who'd, who'd been lost in the holocaust and so on were, were had reservations about this idea that she should sort of come to stand in for you know all those millions of people but at the same time i i think sometimes it is helpful to have Real stories help us to understand the past and to understand history and to understand um, these kind of broader uh, experiences. And that's why, you know, it's very important with kind of Holocaust uh, memorialization and so on to kind of capture individual accounts of, you know, of people who did survive the camps or to capture individual stories of people who didn't and so on and to kind of reclaim all of that because certainly the Nazi project was very much about kind of, you know, not just killing these people, but sort of almost denying their existence at all this isn't something that is specific just to the nazis the nazis did it probably better than most <laughs> regimes <laughs> or um better than most organizational structures based on a racist idea racist and genetic superior ideology but you'll notice throughout history there are situations um and, and examples of cultures or regimes trying to erase a person's culture and identity uh, there was an interesting quote i once heard it's, it's a film called um, Nowhere in Africa and it was about, and it's actually based on a true story yet again, and it's about a young girl's um, experiences in Kenya when her and her family, her parents flee, they're Jews, and they flee from Austria to, to live in Kenya. And the father is uh, friends with a African Kenyan and he talks about, like a local tribesman, and he talks about what what it means when you lose your lose your land so a man can lose his life or he can lose his wealth but it, you know his family can recover um he can earn more money all sorts of things but he says when you lose your land like you lose a part of your soul you lose your heritage and when the man's talking about land he's not talking about physical land although i assume that for the tribesmen in Kenya, the land was very important because it's something that's part of their heritage for many thousands of years, part of their their culture. But he was talking about land as in like, mm. when you lose your country. And for a lot of the Jews in Germany and across Europe, they weren't just losing their freedom and their, their liberty, they were losing their identity mm. as Germans. You know, they saw themselves as Germans or they saw themselves as Austrians mm. or they saw themselves as Dutch. They didn't necessarily see themselves as a separate race or a separate society. Um, and particular, this is particularly the case with Anne Frank's family, who were liberal Jews, you know, who weren't really practicing. So they may have ethnically been Jewish, but culturally, they very much were mm. intellectual Germans. And they ended up stateless as a result of, yeah, of, of, the, of the Nazis, uh, you know, so legally in a very difficult situation, aside from the kind of question about their safety. The, the, there is something, yeah, I mean, there's something really awful. I mean, obviously, there's something horrendous about killing a vast amount of people, but there's something really awful about mm. trying to erase them from history. And you're, you're, you're finding that this is happening in today's world with um, the Yazidi community in northern northern Iraq, mm -hmm. you know, with ISIS going in and basically trying to erase these people from history. Mm. 
you know, like they were never here and, and, and they don't exist and they've never mm. existed. And there's something truly barbaric and awful about that. That reminds me very much you saying that of another Voyager episode. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a lot of Voyager episodes that tie into ideas about the Holocaust, but the episode Remember is very much about that idea of the fact that this, this group of people have not just been exterminated, but the, the memory of them is being, you know, it's kind of revisionist history. The me- memory of them is, is kind of being erased basically. And it's just this very old lady in that episode who is sort of determined not to, to let that kind of erasure completely take place and that's why in that episode we have Bellana Torres uh experiencing this old woman's memories kind of tem- telepathically and and kind of learning the the truth about what happened because in that instance they were all killed and therefore there's there, there's no one left and there's no there's almost no one left who even remembers what happened and the project has obviously been to try and sort of move on and and uh you, you know kind of brush it under the carpet and uh and and invent these kind of fictions around it and, and interestingly Anne Frank actually has a line in her diary where she says basically you know because she knows that Jews are being killed in large numbers but she says you know basically as long as some of us survive and that then you know the kind of Jewish people will go forward somehow you know and we can rebuild and we can kind of get over this in a sense but it is absolutely that idea of the threat the kind of existential threat of being completely you know of genocide basically of being completely wiped out as well as the kind of a threat of you losing your life. I mean, we see it again in Star Trek, I guess, with the Elorians. Again, you know, we have a group of people who are displaced refugees, you know, and, and to some extent with the Bajorans in Deep Space Nine, you know, we do see these various instances of these people kind of fleeing oppressive regimes or, pl- or fl- you know, in the Elorians case, it's the Borg, but, you know, fleeing some kind of uh, threat to their sort of survival and how many are going to kind of make it through and what kind of, you know, what can they sort of rebuild afterwards as survivors of that kind of experience. So it's interesting that you should talk about survival because this is something that I actually was thinking about the other day and I watched a film about Armenia because I'm part Armenian. My father is half Armenian and our family is here today because my great-grandfather fled to America Mm. from Armenia after the genocide and his entire family were killed by the Turks and his most of well, his most of his village were um, killed by the Turks. And he, when he was a very small boy, and he made his way through lots of different. It's a real adventure story, actually. He made his way through lots of different means um, to eventually become come to America when he was sixteen years old. The rest is history. That's how our family kind of was born. So one of the things that was interesting was I was reading about this film that I watched about, America, about Armenia and I came across a quote by William Saroyan who is a Armenian writer and one of the things that he says is um, and he's talking about the genocide in this respect and about the fact that the Armenians have often been persecuted especially by the Turks um, and he says go ahead destroy Armenia see if you can do it send them into the desert without bread or water burn their homes and their churches then see if they will not laugh sing and pray again for when two of them meet anywhere in the world, see if they will not create a new Armenia. And I thought that was quite an insightful quote because he's going through all the different destructive things that someone can do or a group of people can do to another group of people. But when two of the people with the same heritage meet in another part of the world, they can recreate the homeland that they lost. And that is something that I do think that my great-grandfather was possibly kind of trying to do when he was in the US. He was 
not very good at adapting to American culture, to be honest. He never learned to read English, apparently, despite the fact that he lived to be 100 years old <laughs> or over wow. 100 years old. He yeah. never learned to read English. Uh, <laughs> I think he left most of the paperwork up to his wife, my great-grandmother. Mm. Um, he did adopt an American name, um, he, which was interesting. He and my great-grandmother adopt Amer adopted American names because they both had very Armenian names. But... He lived in a, t a part of the US which was very much dominated by the Armenian community. And in a way, I think that's kind of a little bit what happens when people flee these terrible regimes and these atrocities and they go and live somewhere else. They seek out the people that are of the same kind of heritage th as they are and they form communities to rebuild mm. what they've lost in their home countries. Absolutely, yeah. I mean course and i don't know i mean i suppose one of the things that comes across in counterpoint is this idea of i guess because they have that wormhole is like it, there is a real a goal to escape do you know what i mean that they can get away from these people so the situation is different from the anne frank story in that sense in that the anne frank story they're basically just sitting it out they're in hiding they're kind of waiting for the war to end i suppose and you know and she talks about because um you know while they're in there d-day happens for example and she's very interested in the kind of the progress towards the end of the war and the progress that the allied troops are making and so on but at the same time really they're just going to stay there and you know and hope that they stay hidden for long enough whereas in the counterpoint episode is it's you know is more like that situation of refugees fleeing and kind of will they get away in time or not and because they've got that wormhole that wormhole sort of represents their kind of escape you know as soon as they get through the wormhole that's it they're kind of they're across the border they're they're safe in a sense it's their sort of you know it's the end of the sound of music uh trekking over the mountains it's that kind of moment which i guess is a much more optimistic ending in a sense do you know what i mean is a much more uh, it gives some hope, in a sense, because it is about getting away from it all, that you can escape this regime. Whereas, you know, and, you know, of course, a lot of Jewish people did escape Nazi Germany, as you described, you know, Armenians escaping the genocide there. Uh, they, you know, there are always refugees trying to escape from these terrible situations. And in the, you know, in the present day, currently, we have lots of refugees trying to escape from Syria or, you know, or so on. But also, I suppose there are those who are are stuck there and just trying to survive, you know, from day to day and really how awful that kind of situation is. And, uh, you, you know, and the divorce in counterpoint there, you know, they're not in a war with anyone. There's no, there's no scope for them being dismantled necessarily. Do you know what I mean? The only possibility is to escape, to get away from them. So in a way, I suppose Anne Frank has hope that, you know, she's quite pro-British. I mean, she talks a lot about Churchill and, uh, you know, the King and Queen and all this sort of thing. You know, she's quite, um, she's less uh, critical of the British, I suppose, than some of the other people in the annex are who, who, who are maybe, you know, thinking that the war should be happening, you know, the, D-Day should be happening a bit quicker or whatever. She's She's got much more sympathy for the Allies and for what they're trying to do and kind of confidence that ultimately they will prevail over the Nazis. So I suppose that's a big part of, you, you know, of that hope and kind of clinging on to hope in that situation is the idea that it is finite. You know, if we, if we stick it out long enough, we'll be all right. And I mean, the awful thing, you know, in Anne Frank's case is that... Um, you know, they made it there. They were there for several years. You know, they made it there to after D-Day. They made it there. Um, you know, then they were taken away to the camps and she only died, I think, a couple of months before the end of the war, uh, before the camp was liberated. Um, you know, so if she'd survived 
a short time longer you know she might have lived the long and happy life that she describes in the diary you know she talks about what she's going to be like as an 80 year old woman or if her father had got visas to travel to america and south america which he tried to get he? before right. they went yeah. into hiding so there was there was there was a window where jews were escaping from europe to the mm. us and then that window closed and he was just slightly too late for that i mean there has been a lot of protests to do with refugees and immigration and asylum seekers across most mm. of the western world because obviously europe is facing a massive crisis right now with uh, people who are very desperate trying to make their way into europe or people who are desperate trying to get mm. into the us um, and in Australia, for instance, is another example. And I've seen numerous protests on the news. I've attended some protests myself. And I, 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 one of the most insightful signs I saw was a sign about Anne Frank. And it said if Anne Frank had been given asylum as a refugee, almost anywhere, she would be in her 80s now. She wouldn't have died. So there is that question about whether or not it's not just about waiting out to the end of the war. It's also about countries accepting refugees and asylum seekers <laughs> before the situation gets so bad in their home country. And that's a kind of interesting point that comes up in Counterpoint because, I mean, there's, there's not any exactly description of paperwork, but there, you know, there is this question, will Janeway grant asylum? You know, Cash asks her for asylum, basically. She makes some remarks. She sort of says, you know, well, I don't, you know, I don't kind of grant asylum to everyone who comes on board my ship kind of thing. But she has obviously decided to help these these refugees. And he points out she's probably violating the prime directive by doing so. And she says, well, yeah, OK, but I'll deal with that, you, you know, when it comes to it. So there is that sort of question of like, it, you're right, it is her, her status as a kind of humanitarian. I mean, say Tuvok and Vorek had died, as she claims they have. I don't think there's much question that she still would have helped these, you know, she's, in a way, she's kind of, she's halfway there because she's already got to hide her own people. But it, it seems like such a kind of obvious Starfleet thing to do that you're going to help these people who are being persecuted. And especially for someone like Janeway, it's kind of hard to imagine that she wouldn't in a way. But I mean, you're right. Certainly there is that question of like, how do, what, what do other countries do to help? And I mean, you know, what kind of paperwork do they make possible? Do they allow people in and so on? I mean, just going back briefly to the case of some of the Jews in the Channel Islands, you know, there were Jews in the Channel Islands who had fled Austria and ended up, I mean, one woman, for example, uh, had, had fled Austria. She'd gone to work for an English family and then the family had gone on holiday to the Channel Islands and then the war had started and she couldn't get home because, because she was an Austrian national, she was basically arrested and had to be kind of interrogated and checked that she wasn't a spy or anything. And then by the time that process had all sort of finished, it wasn't possible to get her over to England. And so therefore she was there when the Germans arrived and then, you know, was sent off to a camp and was killed. So, you know, there it was very much a kind of failure, a kind of administrative setback in a sense that she would, you know, she was classified as someone who needed to be sort of processed in one way by the British authorities. And then she couldn't be, I mean, she literally couldn't be transported back to England by that point. But, you know, so there's this whole sort of question about I don't know what it says on your papers and who has the authority to get from this place to another. And, you, you know, do you have free travel or not? And obviously in these situations where people were fleeing in huge numbers, uh, you know, and, and as they are again today, being allowed to get to the country that you need to get to in order to be safe and then to stay there once you are there, because, you know, we have stories about people being deported back to places where they face 
significant dangers. You know, those things are crucial. And obviously, the Federation is a very kind of welcoming organization, we imagine. But then I suppose there is a sort of question, you know, we see the Bajorans in the next generation living in kind of refugee camps, basically. I mean, why have they not been given somewhere nicer to live or kind of, do you know what I mean? Why are they not being kind of, maybe they didn't want it, but you sort of wonder what, you know, is the Federation always doing enough to help these people who are kind of displaced or who are desperate or are kind of in need of help? Or are there kind of political reasons why they can't always do that? So one of the things that I thought was actually it's interesting, you bring up the Bajorans, because one of the things I thought was very interesting about Counterpoint, which I noticed right away, which is not something that you find in human history, obviously, um, especially not in terms of the Holocaust, is although although the Nazis very much defined a difference between the Jews and supposedly Aryan Germans, we all are the same species. Mm. Whereas in Counterpoint, the telepaths are a different alien species than the Devore. And in Star Trek, the Cardassians are a different alien species than the Bajorans. And although the Star Trek philosophy and the Federation philosophy is that we should respect all alien races and treat them as equal, you know, a Ferengi is as good as a Klingon and a human is as good as a a, a Trill and a Trill is as good as a, a Horter. <laughs> I always think of Horters, even though there aren't that many Horters <laughs> wandering around the federation but um you know what i mean like and but the hort is a prime example the hort has as much of a right to li- of life to anyone else despite mm. the fact that they're slightly different they look different um and it, it it's i don't think it's star trek's greatest uh, i think it's a bit of a mistake in star trek to make almost all the aliens look mm-hmm. humanoid because and i think that's something you don't find in other science fiction series um, I know that there's some sort of myth, uh, sort of scientific mythological like sort of point behind that. We're all supposed to have originated from some particular alien, but I think that's a bit of a mistake. But then Star Trek started in a situation where they didn't have a huge amount of money to make all sorts of strange alien beings, and they basically all they could do was wrinkle mm-hmm. someone's forehead, so <laughs> with makeup. So I can see why they did it. But I feel there's a, there's a distinct difference between the Devor mistrusting telepaths of any sort of racial background because obviously mm. Tuvok is Vulcan. He's not a member of this particular telepathic uh, refugee group. And uh, in a situation with the, the Nazis and the Jews, mm. I guess in a way though, telepaths, you can't tell the telepaths, can mm. you? And you can't tell someone's Jewish unless they're wearing a, mm. like a star. So, whereas if you're Cardassian, you can tell if someone's Bajoran because they look very different, don't they? That's true. I guess also with the Jews, there's that element of they might be they might be Jews in all different countries and of different nationalities. And like you were saying, you know, they might be ethnically Jewish, but culturally German or, you know, etc. So uh, are they one group of people or are they is it just this one thing that they all have in common in the same way as telepaths all have in common that they're telepathic? But, you know, a Vulcan telepath is different from a Betazoid telepath or whatever. Do you know what I mean? Like, so in the same way as there might be Jews all over the world, there are telepaths all over the quadrant, even if they come from different, you know, species. I mean, I think it's tricky with Star Trek. There's always this kind of, you know, they, they, they always refer to species as races. And there's this kind of idea that ra- different species represent, you know, what we would call racial difference rather than species difference. And we kind of just accept that in a way. I guess in a way, uh, this is the sign of some of, of true 
prejudice and racism is if you do see everybody as that one identity. So you're perfectly right that there are Jews throughout the world and they're not all the same. Um, They are ethnically different and also they have different ideas of what Judaism is and they practice different types of Judaism. It's like saying all Christians are the same Mm -hmm. or all Muslims are the same or all Buddhists are the same, which is, it's ridiculous. It's like, it's like, actually, it's like saying, you know, everyone from Africa is the same, but actually Africa's a continent full of countries and they're all radically different. They speak different languages and they have different cultural identities. So it's a true sign of prejudice and racism to make everybody from one particular religion or one particular ethnic background be mm. the same. And that's kind of what the Nazis wanted to do. They wanted to make all Jews seem the same to everybody so that they could then exterminate mm. them. So in a way, maybe that's kind of what the Devor are doing with the telepaths is the sort of saying they don't trust telepaths. It doesn't matter if you're a Vulcan telepath or a Betazoid telepath. It's the idea that you can read people's minds and they don't trust that and they don't, they don't want, telepaths in their in their space or in their society but moving on how did you think the divorce compared to other repressive and authoritarian regimes in star trek like so for instance i'm thinking about the terran empire in discovery the cardassians in deep space nine the nazis in pattern of force the herogen who i think really played at being nazis mm-hmm. rather than actually were nazis if you see what i'm saying what how do you think the divorce compared to those sort of repressive groups in Star Trek? I suppose there's something quite familiar about them, in a sense. They're familiar because they're, we have these associations with the with the the Nazis, you know, in the real world. But they're also familiar because they are kind of a type. I mean, I think the Cardassians are maybe the most elaborated, the most complex uh, of those kind of authoritarian societies. But, you know, we, we do certainly see a lot of authoritarian fascist societies in Star Trek. I, I think it's... Interesting. I, I suppose, I mean, patterns of force, you had literally, you know, space Nazis in that they were all dressed up in Nazi uniforms with swastikas and so on. So it kind of couldn't be, couldn't be less subtle in some <laughs> ways, that, that kind of connection. And, uh, Tony and I talked about that episode uh, way back quite early in, in primitive culture history. But yeah, I think you're right. The Herogen were kind of just dressing up and, and playing at being Nazis, which is kind of an interesting subject in itself. There's that episode of Peep Show where there's a whole thing about, reenacting the second world war or so on and, and what it means to dress up in a nazi uniform and we, we had prince harry for example went to a fancy dress party dressed as a nazi and the kind of controversy around that so i suppose there's a whole question there about you know what does it mean to uh, dress up as nazis for fun the terrans i think are quite interesting particularly in discovery i would say i mean i suppose the terran empire has always it has always had sort of fascist iconography, but I think they kind of really went to town with discovery when they went to the mirror universe with kind of making those connections with kind of emphasizing that this is a real fascist state in a sense with, you know, in terms of the kind of visual iconography of it, in terms of the kind of grandeur of it, which I suppose we never saw previously in Star Trek with the mirror universe. And that's partly to do with Discovery's budget and their production design and so on. But you, you do get that sense of those kind of quite grand, you know, this sort of imperial palace ship. Because, you know, one thing the Nazis went in for in a big way was, you know, it was the smart uniforms. It was the kind of bling in a sense. It was the huge swastika banners. It was the giant eagles. It was all this kind of stuff that was meant to be this, you know, this thousand year Reich that was going to endure forever. And it was this kind of grand performance. And so certainly I think we've seen a bit more of that recently with Discovery. I guess the Cardassians are the, are the, the, the species in Star Trek that have the most 
sort of structural similarity in terms of, you know, we do have with the Bajorans this situation that is very reminiscent of the Holocaust, you know, with labour camps, with, you know, the, the way that they kind of abuse them in that way with these kind of racist ideologies of being a superior race of having the right to use another group of people in that way and so on so 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 i suppose i feel like the the divorce fit quite easily into a kind of an understanding that we have of of space nazis in a sense it's like it's 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 almost like you said earlier you know there's very little context there's very little kind of exposition or setup we're kind of right in the middle of it it's become routine i mean even at the very beginning of the episode janeway has a line she says yeah we know the drill and she looks kind of weary and also kind of sad by the whole experience it's it's not dramatic in a sense the search although although there's kind of tension in it and obviously there's tension for the people who might be discovered there's also this element of this has become routine this has become a kind of regular thing and actually you know talking about what the nazis represent i mean you know, we've talked about this kind of cultural snobbery. We talked about this kind of thuggery of the smashing things and so on. There's also that element of the banality of evil. And I suppose you do get that to some extent with the routine aspects of these searches, the fact that it's all become old hat, that it's all become almost boring, that it has really become quite a banal experience going through these, you know, jumping through the hoops of this society in a sense. Um, in the same way as in other Star Trek episodes, particularly Voyager episodes, we might see a society who, uh, I'm thinking of, for example, there's that one where Tom Paris gets in trouble for, for speeding or whatever and has to, you, you know, kind of do his flying test again or whatever for this society who are very finickety about following the exact rules of, of, you know, how you travel through their space or whatever. I mean, so we've seen other episodes where this idea of like the following the rules of the society in order to be granted free passage are important in quite a banal way. In this instance, of course, the stakes are incredibly high because they're literally going to exterminate people if they, you, you know, if they're if they're caught out breaking the rules, which they're they're having to do for a practical reasons and b humanitarian reasons. Well, there's well, there's there's two different types of stories, isn't there? Like when you think about you think about mm. World War Two and you think about the Nazis, which can mm. be also be reflected in Star Trek. There's the story of um, the resistance, you know, fighting, being mm. brave, doing physical acts, and you can almost see that with Kira and her resistance cell and Shakar's resistance cell fighting against. The Cardassians. Kira is very much a person of action. Mm. And then there's the other type of story, which is that it's more of a slower resistance. It's a kind of more secret resistance, like this one. Mm. Like you're enduring inspections, you're hiding somebody, it's down to technicalities, you're using, in, in, in Voyager, they're using science. And I'm thinking when you talk about the banality of things, mm. I'm thinking about Shinda's list. And one of the things about Shinda's list is he really saves people yeah. by yeah, using yeah. paperwork. You know, they alter paperwork and he writes a list and the list is for his, his factory. And that's how basically how he ends up saving people. And he bribes people and he negotiates with people and he schmoozes people. And that's how he ends up saving people's lives. And it's all very much, it's all very bureaucratic. It's not really going in and marching in and liberating people with a bunch of weapons and breaking them out of a jail cell. It's playing the system to ensure that you can hide those people in the bureaucracy, if that makes sense. And it's also that emphasis on kind of ordinary people doing things that are not that are not heroic in the sense of, you know, you're going to get... Uh, it's not going and planting a bomb or whatever, but it is. it does take a, a different kind of heroism. And again, Anne Frank talks about this. You know, she talks about how grateful she is to these people who are helping them. And I think that's a really interesting question in all of this, is that... Um, I suppose the episode counterpoint in a sense, because it focuses on Janeway, it does focus more on the helper than on the 
the people in need of help, in a sense, because they're kind of necessarily absent, because they're hidden in the transporter buffer for a lot of the episode. We don't actually get all that much time with them, but we do get, uh, you know, some discussion of why Janeway is helping them, what that kind of humanitarianism involves. But, you know, in real life, uh, you know, people did take these risks. I mean, in Anne Frank's case, there were, I think, about four people who were you know, regularly bringing them food, bringing them information, uh, chatting with them, you know, just kind of being friendly with them and so on. And in fact, the only reason that the diary survived is because one of those people, having been interrogated by the police, I think, went after, you know, the Jews had been rounded up and, and taken away, you know, and Frank and her family and the other families they were living with, um, went back to the annex and found all the papers of Anne Frank's diary and gathered them up together and kept it and basically you know, promised herself that she would, um, you know, as she thought, give it, give it back to Anne Frank one day at the end of the war. And obviously when she found out that Anna died, uh, she managed to give it back to her father instead. And her father was the one who ended up getting it published. So, you know, so you do have this sense of these people who are, you, you know, who were helping them. And, and Anne certainly was very grateful to them for the help they were giving while she was alive and in fact it's only through their help of one of them that we you know that her story has survived has outlived her and that that you know we we know who she was at all um it, it's kind of interesting to me um just this is my you, know, you can tell this is my my pet subject just banging on about the channel islands again uh but in the channel islands basically in terms of resistance they didn't really have very much of what you you know what you're saying like planting bombs or, or going out with guns or whatever of the kind of resistance that we see in um uh the killing game for example you know the french resistance um with people in barrows and and you know black turtlenecks and you, you know all that kind of daring do they didn't really have any of that for practical reasons they didn't have the resources they didn't have anywhere to hide because they were they, they were islands and they, they they were quite limited in what they could do but they did have a kind of unofficial humanitarian resistance movement and they wouldn't have called themselves a resistance movement i mean i interviewed a guy who was uh, quite heavily involved in a lot of these activities and he he will never talk about it as he doesn't see himself as a resistance operative but to many other people he was because basically his job was he was an insurance clerk he had reason to travel around the island on a bike he would go and see various farmers and so on about their insurance claims and so on and he'd got in with some people who were working with in the channel islands they had these it wasn't so much the jews that there were a couple of instances of jews who who ended up being stuck there and people were helping them but a much bigger phenomenon was the Russian labourers who'd been brought there. They'd been brought there as slave labourers. They were treated appallingly badly, you, you know, really kind of brutalised. They, you know, they had no, they were wearing rags. They didn't have enough food to eat. They, you know, they were really starving and wretched. And quite often these Russian labourers would escape from their camps, and then go and hide out and they would hide in a barn or, or, or somewhere and try and evade the authorities. But basically this kind of network of people sprang up who would help them and would place them with sympathetic locals so this this guy bob who i interviewed basically his involvement was mainly that he would go around talking to these farmers and saying look you know i've, I've got a, a young you know 16 year old russian lad or whatever uh do you think you could host him you know keep him hidden in your barn or whatever so he was a kind of um when you talk about the kind of bureaucracy it's not so much the bureaucracy but the kind of he was like almost sort of lettings agent for these kind of undercover you know people who were hiding from the authorities helping to move them from place to place um and you know if it got a bit hot in one place if someone was denounced or whatever then they would have to shift one of them 
somewhere else. And he actually got involved in all this because he was visiting a client in, in her house and there was this man in her living room and um, and, and she said, oh, oh, this is my lodger. He, he's French. And the guy said, you know, pleased to meet you or whatever. And he thought that's, that's no way that man is French. He clearly has a Russian accent. And in the end, he sort of got the whole story out of this woman about how she'd ended up um, rescuing this guy but she was denounced they had you know a matter of hours to get him out of her house before they knew the Germans were going to arrive and this guy Bob basically said well look come with me you can come to my office very much what happened to Anne Frank you know it was the weekend he said you can stay at my office for the weekend and so he brought him into the office and they hid him in the filing room and you know one of the other farmers who'd been helping came and brought fruit and vegetables every day and made sure they had food to eat and so on and so he stayed in the office for the weekend and then they moved into a lockup gang and then, he, and then they moved in somewhere else. And in the end, Bob managed to find a couple of friends with a flat in town who, you know, had room basically and were willing to shelter him in their in their flat for the rest of the war. And he, you know, and, he, and this guy survived the war, you know, living with this couple of local people as a result. And so, so you know, these kind of things. I mean, undoubtedly, people were saving lives. You know, they were saving these kind of these people's lives. They they weren't resisting in the sense that we maybe like to think of as this kind of heroic dramatic uh you know fighting the regime or whatever but they were you know providing humanitarian aid and 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 survival to people who otherwise you know the regime you know might well have killed by that point and certainly would have brutalized and treated appallingly badly and you know many of them were dying you know not necessarily by being murdered but you know like Anne Frank dying of disease or or dying of starvation or whatever so i suppose there is it maybe it's, it's one sort of glimmer of positivity in some of these stories is that there are always these people who are, you know, willing to risk their own lives in order to help other people and to and to do the right thing like Janeway is, you know, rather than turn a blind eye. That makes me think of that quote. I think it's a Mr. Rogers quote. <laughs> I always think of the like neighbourhood friendly Mr. Rogers. I think his quote is something like when he was little, when he was watching sort of scary things on the mm. news. His mother would always say to him, look for the helpers. Mm. You will always find people who are helping. Mm. You know, despite the fact that there can be tragic events that will happen, you're always going to find someone who'll help. The people that helped and Frank and her family and to hide them, they did it at great mm. risk to themselves. And after the family um, were found and taken away and arrested and, and deported, Meet Bajiz, I think that's how you say her name, Meep she is. She was one of the people that hid them. She actually went to the police station the next day and offered to buy their freedom mm. with money. So she's not just hiding them for two years at great risk to herself and her, her husband and her own personal safety. But she's also, after they've been arrested, she's actually going and yet again putting her life mm. in danger by trying to, to help them again. So there was this, it's this, this continual, like you said, quiet resistance, but it's a continual quiet resistance. Like you were saying, this guy moved this Russian laborer from one place to another again and again mm. and again. It's not just one-off gesture, a one-off uh, instance where you're helping someone. It's that commitment to continue to help that person, even as things get more and more desperate and things get more mm. and more dangerous. Um, actually, some of the people that hid Anne Frank were mm. actually arrested afterwards and interrogated by the Gestapo, and some were even imprisoned. So all of them did survive the war, but it was interesting as well is when when she when they were actually arrested and taken away, one of the things they were most frightened of, not just the safety of the Frank family and the people they've been hiding, but of all their contacts mm. in the black market, mm. because for every single person who's hiding somebody, 
there's also a network of people that you know who are also helping yeah. you. So if you're, you know, taken down, you could technically endanger a whole bunch of other people around you. And that's something that is kind of reflected in Star Trek, I think, in terms of Bajor and the Cardassians and like the fact that Kira does have all these connections to people that she knew in the resistance. And in one of the episodes, I think it's called Darkness and mm. the Light, I think it is, where the people in her resistance style start being murdered. And mm. it's a mystery, like who's killing her old resistance colleagues. And one of them is a woman who worked as a mm. cleaner in a records office who fed Kira information. And she's so terrified of being found out that she, even years later after the occupation's finished, mm. she can't tell anybody about what she did. So it's this this resistance can actually be, like you said, can actually be quite small. It can be somebody in a room somewhere who collects information and feeds it to somebody else. But it's still a, a great risk because every time you do something like that, you're connected to a whole web of other yeah. people who are also trying to help in some way. Bob, who I interviewed, who who was moving these Russians about, he had a friend who worked in the like the records office in the in the town, and basically, as well as moving these Russians about, Bob would help with getting fake IDs for them, so they could actually go out and about in the town if they had a fa like a fake ID card saying that they were someone else. Um, and so this, so he had this friend who worked in the office, uh, and basically all he would do is he'd go and see him in the lunch hour when the rest of the staff were out on their lunch, and this guy would um, sort of make a bit of chat for a few minutes and then just and then the understanding was he would say to Bob oh I just have to go and get something from the other room and he would leave the room and stay out of the room for a few minutes so Bob could get the stamp and stamp the ID cards and basically do whatever he needed to do and then come back and sort of you know basically turning a blind eye you know he he obviously was completely aware of what Bob was doing but the understanding was that he he wasn't going to witness it he wasn't going to get involved in it but you know but that in a sense was a form of you know, whether you call that resistance or not, it's a form of helping, basically saying, you know, okay, I'm going to take this, this is how far I'm going to, what I'm willing to risk, I'm going to pretend that I didn't see you do that, essentially. And, you, you know, and people were very aware that, that of the dangers that came with these things. I mean, in the case of the Russian labourer that I mentioned, the woman who'd been sheltering him, she was a woman called Louisa Gould. She um, And the, one of the reasons she's ended up sheltering him was that her own son had recently uh, had been serving in the forces and had recently died. And she came, this 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 Russian uh, sort of came into her life because someone else mentioned him to her. And she said she felt like she had to help him because he was another mother's son. And, you know, it's what she would have wanted someone to do for her son if he'd been in that situation. She felt this kind of obligation to to help him as a mother, essentially. And she almost kind of adopted him. I think she sort of, you know, she was still grieving the loss of her own son. So she kind of adopted this young man almost as a kind of surrogate son. But basically, you know, so they got him away when they realised she was going to be denounced and managed to get him into hiding. He survived the war. But, you know, she was called in and arrested. Uh, her brother was called in and arrested for helping her. You know, other members of her family were called in and arrested as well. And they were all deported to camps in Europe. The brother ended up in, in Belsen, uh, which I think is where Anne Frank died and, and survived the war just. But by the end of the war, it, you know, he was like five stone or something. You know, he was really on the the point of death, really. Um, the sister, the one who'd actually sheltered the Russian, ended up in the gas chamber and was killed. So... You know, and so these are people who really paid, you know, in her case, paid the ultimate price, in his case, paid the appalling price for taking that risk for helping someone, you know, just out of that kind of shared humanity and that kind of um, feeling that really that was the only, 
right thing to do, even if it did mean risking your own life. You know, if someone arrives on your doorstep in need of help, you can't turn them away in that situation. You know, just like Janeway can't turn those people away, even though, you know, the prime directive is telling her to, you know, not to get involved. And See, I would disagree with that because I think people do turn sure, people do, away. I wouldn't say it's the right mm. thing to do. And I wouldn't say it's, like you say, you can't, but that's because you personally wouldn't mm. because you're a good person. Um, but I think that people can. And so that's what makes these little acts of resistance or the, in the case of this lady mm. in, in the Channel Islands, uh, a giant act of mm. resistance that sadly ended up costing her her life. The, these acts are incredibly brave. They are truly amazing and wonderful examples of humanitarian resistance. I would say in the case of Janeway and Counterpoint, she's not only risking her own life because they, the Devore make it clear that any ship that's found to be harboring telepaths will be impounded and the, the, the actual crew and inhabitants of that ship will be taken off to like detention. So they're either going to be imprisoned or they'll be put in a camp or it's it, whatever is going to happen. It's not going to be good. Jane isn't just risking her own life and her own safety. She's actually risking the life and the safety of her entire crew, which is a big responsibility considering the fact that she has through her decisions, her moral decisions, cast her crew light years away from home. They're already traveling to Earth, making this big journey traveling to Earth because of a moral decision of Janeway's to begin with. And now she's and now she's making another decision. I suppose that's what I mean when I say she can't do anything. And of course, of course, you're right when I say people can't do it. Yeah, the vast majority of people can turn a blind eye. I mean, actually, you know, what this guy Bob said to me was that he would go around to these farms ask, saying, you know, I've got this Russian, is there any chance you could look after him? And he said most people... You know, no one was ever sort of hostile or angry. They'd always say, oh, how terrible. I wish I could help. But basically, nine out of 10 people said, look, I really don't think I can. Sorry. And, you know, maybe one in 10 would say, yeah, all right, um, you know, bring him around tomorrow or whatever. So, so you're right. Most people actually aren't in that instance, weren't willing to, to take the risk to themselves to, to help someone else. But I suppose I meant for the people who do. Often it's, it's that kind of sense of, well, how can I say no to that? And I think with Janeway, that's certainly the case. I think with Starfleet, generally that would, that would be the case. But maybe with Voyager, particularly because we've, you know, because she made that choice in caretaker, we sort of know that's the side of the fence she's, she's always going to come down on. Do you know what I mean? Maybe of, of all the Star Trek captains, she's the most kind of, you know, she's, she's really an idealist. She's a very kind of dogged idealist. She's not willing to, bend her principles or whatever she kind of is is someone who absolutely believes in doing the right thing even if it kills you you know or even if it you know come hell or high water almost um so so it's it's not surprising that she should choose to 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 do this thing you know i think in part that is a kind of that's one of those kind of messages that we get from star trek in a way isn't it is that starfleet people do these kind of um you know, do the right thing basically uh, and that we would you know hope that we do the same thing in in that situation in counterpoint she's very pragmatic and she understands that the universe can be a cruel place but she's actually ultimately she mm. she has her faith you know and her faith is that even at the end when kashik has basically betrayed her it has, doesn't extinguish her mm. faith in people and that's very mm. much linking to mm. anne frank actually because anne frank still had faith in people after everything and one of the quotes from her diary is i keep my ideals because in spite of everything i still believe people are really good at heart and I mean, that's pretty insightful for a 15-year-old who's hiding from a regime that basically mm. wants to exterminate her. You know what I mean? 
that's a, that's a very hopeful but also a very brave thing to believe to continue to believe like you're not losing hope and Voyager is really very much about mm. hope isn't it the entire thing is about them hoping that they're going to be able to get home that they're going to be able to keep their Starfleet ideals and their Federation ideals ideals even though they're light years away from their own space before we head off I was wondering if you had any ideas about like why Star Trek is so keen to explore these <laughs> space Nazis and these these regimes and wondering if if perhaps maybe are these stories I mean I think we kind of answered this question but are these stories still important in today's world because our media landscape is very saturated with TV shows and films about regimes and totalitarian um occupying forces i mean we have a lot of films and tv shows about the nazis and world war ii we have dystopian science fiction i'm thinking about the handmaid's tale blade runner i guess blade runner's not too dystopian but it's pretty dystopian we have films about rebellions think about star wars or a rebellion against a totalitarian force i mean the new order and the most recent star wars films they're basically space nazis let's be honest <laughs> and also about resistance as well so why do these fascinate us so much as I viewers? Think probably, and th this might be a slightly simplistic answer, but, but I would say for my money, probably because I, I think it's interesting that with this episode of Star Trek, they started off, uh, as I said before, with this quite modern sort of rip from the headlines storyline, potentially about kind of refugees or about, you know, people fleeing one country to come to another uh, and ended up with this kind of uh, very clear kind of Holocaust parallel instead. I suppose in the modern world, we see everything as a bit complicated and a bit murky. And like you say, we're not sure. Do we open our borders? Do we open our hearts to refugees or so on? Do we, you know, all these issues are quite sort of, sort of uh, knotty and, 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 and tricky to, to dismantle. I mean, you know, we saw the whole thing over Brexit with, you know, all these kind of ideas about people coming, you know, letting people in from other countries and so on and having our sovereignty and all these kind of ideas. You know, all these, ide these ideas are all quite, troublesome and complicated and we see that actually in the there's a deep space nine episode but the, about the refugees who come through the wormhole and they want to settle on beige and that kind of whole um issue to do with that which i think is it's quite interesting in terms of that kind of aspect of like how do we how do we treat people who come to us begging for help basically in that way but i suppose going back to the second world war going back to this these kind of resistance movements i mean resistance movements in particular are quite heroic i think you know space nazis are easy villains because uh, they've got all this kind of villainous baggage associated with them but i think there's this kind of almost simplicity to the stories around the second world war you know we kind of know that was a just war we know that, that resisting against that regime was the right thing to do you know no, no one likes to think of themselves as living in a regime that's cruel to other people or that is kind of you know closed-hearted or or you know all these sorts of things but in a way it's it, it's quite a sort of black and white situation, morally speaking. It's kind of easy for us to go back. It's easy for us to, uh, you know, if we, if we have these sort of so-called space Nazis, we, you know, we know we're meant to hate them. We, we there's, this, it's kind of quite straightforward. They're not, I mean, I mean, the Cardassians arguably do become more complex, but at the same time, they're also still pretty nasty, you know, for the most part in terms of the occupation and so on. So I think there's that kind of, satisfaction of a kind of to some degree it's sort of morally simplifying to go back to that to go back to you know a resistance movement in a second world war context is a lot more it's a lot easier to 
get on board with than say you know Kira as a terrorist in a more modern context for example you know they keep talking about as a terrorist but at the same time the the kind of model is very much the french resistance which you know we think of very differently even if some of the techniques might be similar with the second world war there's a kind of built-in right and wrong to it to a certain extent and certainly with star wars you know the resistance versus the empire it's kind of you know there's not much in terms of shades of gray there in the way that there might be with more more recent history <laughs> so so i suppose no. you know be, because of the second world war and because particularly because of the holocaust which is you know most horrific crime perpetrated against human beings ever probably it's kind of i think there's a kind of straightforward to it straightforwardness to it in kind of moral terms that is appealing to storytellers because you know there, there's drama there there is kind of there are very high stakes and there's also necessarily you can do it in a way that's not necessarily that complex or that kind of nuanced but at the same time it feels quite real and you know i think the, the devour uh, as space nazis they they work quite well you know they're quite believable their kind of racism is quite believable they're kind of you know all these qualities that you mentioned earlier their kind of cultural snobbery and so on we can kind of buy into all that, partly because, you know, we're very familiar with these kind of stereotypes of, you know, Nazis in, in film and, and books and so on, um, as well as in real life. I would argue, though, and I won't go on about it too much, but I would argue that science fiction works best when it contains complex mm -hmm. ideas and complex villains. And I don't think that Star Wars succeeds in this. I'm a big fan of Star Wars and I enjoy it. But mm. the dark side is dark, and they look dark, and they're dressed like dark, evil people. Mm. It's a bit like Lord of the Rings, you know? The orcs are evil because they look evil and they act evil. I mean, I've often wondered what happens on the Death Star, you know, <laughs> on the lunch break. Like, who are all these stormtroopers, mm. and what do they get out of this? I mean, do they go home, take off their helmets, put up their feet, and watch TV? You know, I mean, what happens with, like, the orc society in, in Lord of the Rings? Are the orcs sitting around the dinner table with the little orc children? Do they have orc pets? You know, I mean, without this complexity to their supposed villains, I do struggle to find it all that compelling. And I think, although you're right, the Cardassians are bad, they're awful, and they continue to be awful right through the entirety of Deep Space Nine, there are glimpses of Cardassians who are much more regular people, who aren't set out to kill the Bajorans, who perhaps maybe are living in a system or a, a, a world that is systematically racist and so they themselves are systematically racist but and i'm not excusing that but like for instance in duet the episode duet you know we have a cardassian who is very grief-stricken and guilty over what happened during the occupation and we see examples of cardassian scientists who do want to make connections with humans in the federation who are intelligent and educated and not mm. as prejudiced as perhaps maybe the rest of the people of their culture. And I think that's the great thing about Counterpoint is because Kashik is much more of a well-rounded villain. You know, he is, he's capable of seeing that he's actually making immoral decisions, but he justifies them because it, they are to better his society. He's using his society and his commitment and loyalty to society to to be an excuse for why he's making these mm. bad decisions, you know, why he's doing these immoral acts. It's the same thing with the Cardassian um, in the episode in Next Generation where mm. he's torturing Picard and he's sort of justifying to Picard why he's doing what he's doing. You know, Cardassia was this poor, impoverished 
society that was struggling. They had no natural resources. And so we have to go out mm. and conquer people. And we have to go out and use other people's natural resources. And I think that if you thought about it, really, there were probably, a, well, we know for a fact that there were a huge number of people in Nazi Germany at the time who just chose to look the yeah. other way or who chose to justify their actions th through ideology or through propaganda or through saying, well, I had to do this to protect this or I had to do this because of that. Um, and I think that sometimes that's where science fiction can fall down. And I think the best science fiction is the science fiction that's more complex and has more complex ideas and more complex villains. So in a way, I do sometimes think that Star Trek could have used these space Nazis in a more yeah, intelligent way. Yeah, I think way. that's true. I mean, I, I think, and it's interesting in a way that, you know, by the end of this episode, Kashik very much goes back into his space Nazi box uh, because it turns out that it was all a lie and it was all a trick and he was, you know, he was basically just bluffing Janeway. Whereas I suppose in Deep Space Nine, we would have had more interest in, you, you know, in the guilt of that character. Uh, he's almost sort of playing a character from Deep Space Nine uh, in his bluff in that he's saying that he feels guilty and remorseful and has to kind of reconcile who he is with, with what he's done and so on. Um, and I think you're right. The Cardassians in Deep Space Nine, there's more of an awareness that they are living in this regime and the regime places limits on people. It controls how they think. It controls the information they're fed. You know, the, we see those huge propaganda screens everywhere. Um, they may have reservations about some of the decisions that are being made. You know, even Golda Cut, it has reservations about the orders that he's being given and, and, and tries to sort of modulate those to some extent. So there is, you're right, it's, it's, it's much more complicated. And there is a much more of an, a sense that within that regime, there are individuals who think differently or who are kind of, you know, accommodating themselves to that regime. But that doesn't mean that they're complete automata, you know, that they do have their own beliefs and their own views and so on. And some of those are, you know, appallingly racist or, or, or you know, awful in various ways. Some of them are, you know, less awful, I suppose. And, um, you know, certainly... But I think that's true in some ways with the Nazis and with the Germans in the Second World War more generally, culturally, that yes, we're sort of aware there are different levels of, of people doing different things. There are people looking the other way. There are people, you, you know, who, who feel trapped in that regime themselves because they don't want to go along with it and so on. But I think typically in culture, there are, there are sort of certain Nazi stereotypes that we fall into and the counterpart episode very much plays with some of those, you know, it plays with the kind of, you know, the cultured officer who who's into classical music. It plays with the kind of brutish second in command who just stomps around smashing things and is a bit of a brute. It plays with, you know, these certain stereotypes. And to some extent, these stereotypes are based in reality. I mean, people did experience these kind of behaviours from the Germans and from the Nazis. But equally, I suppose... Just going back to my experience with interviewing people in the Channel Islands, because they're the only group of people I've spoken to in large numbers who actually encountered members of the German armed forces. You know, most people I spoke to said that the, you know, the majority of them just sort of seemed like they were doing a job. A, they might have been conscripted. Uh, they, they weren't necessarily, there were some who were like ardent Nazis and they could tell and their, their kind of attitude and their demeanor and everything. They had that real superiority and so on. There were some who were the real thugs who were going around intimidating people and throwing their weight around. But actually the vast majority were kind of just there because they'd been told to be there. They were doing what they were told to do and they were kind of going along with it. I mean, that is briefly mentioned in the Deep Space Nine episode, Ties of Blood and Water, 
where Kira is um, finds out a Cardassian who um, she's very close to who's dying, a man who sort of like a surrogate father to her a little bit. Um, she finds out that he was present at a famous massacre. And Odo makes the point. Odo's like, well, I looked, mm-hmm. I checked the records and he was one of like a thousand soldiers and he was 19 years old. It's quite possible he never fought, he never even fired a shot. You know, it's quite possible he was there, but he didn't do anything. He didn't kill anybody. And in Kira's view, she's so upset mm. that in her view, it's very simplistic. He was there. He's a Cardassian. A lot of Bajorans died. Mm. They were murdered. And mm. therefore he's complicit. And mm. I guess you could say he kind of is. He shouldn't have been there if he didn't want mm. to kill people and he didn't want to. He shouldn't have been in the army. Perhaps he should have neglect, like rejected conscription. Perhaps he should have become a conscientious, conscientious objector. Perhaps mm. he should have fought against the regime. There's lots of events in history where people are in a situation and they're there, but they're not necessarily actively taking part. And this isn't to excuse or to absolve anyone of any guilt in particular, but it's the, mm. the situation is always much more complex than it's originally presented. And I guess my worry is that World War II, despite the fact that you said it's a very just war compared to many of other different types of conflicts mm. in 20th and 21st century history, my worry is that it gets simplified in entertainment because our entertainment, our world entertainment landscape is so saturated with stories about the Nazis that it's very easy to put them as stereotypes, especially into a science fiction context. And I think that science fiction works best when it presents a mm-hmm. more developed and complex view of the world. Well, it's been really interesting to take a look at the legacy of Anne Frank. Star Trek Voyager and the oppressive forces and authoritarian regimes in the Star Trek universe. But that's not the only subject that's been discussed on the network. So here's a look at what you might have missed elsewhere on the Trek FM network this week. Previously on Trek.FM, The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. You're killing me. I'm going to pull my hair out if that happens, because I really do need to know. What if, like, (laughs) I just had a crazy idea. What if they get the captain in the first episode, but they continue on with these lower deck characters so well that we just never see the captain? And it's like like the teacher in Charlie Brown, like... (laughs) (laughs) The 602 Club. And I don't know that I would want much more humor in this movie. Right. I feel yeah. like this whole is, is this is a survival story. Like this is her yes. surviving what's happening to her, not her controlling the situation like we see in future Tomb Raider movies where yep. she kind of controls what's happening and res- and this is definitely a uh, Laura Croft is responding to what's happening to her. Like the entire scene on the island is her trying to get away. Warp 5. <laughs> So the A plot is the dog and the B plot is his infatuation with Zapal? Well, there's actually kind of a C plot. Well, it's part of the A plot is of why um, Porthos is ill. Okay, is it... Why is Porthos ill again? <laughs> I'm going to say this is definitely not essential. Is- okay, I'm not saying that it's essential or not essential. Continuing mission. Yeah, there's a certain concession with that. Um, if you look at the and, and you're, you know, the, the refit, obviously, is your example. For the director's cut remaster of motion picture, they added a few more CG shots. They're quite hard to tell because they painstakingly tried. You know, Foundation Imaging was really, really good at that, and they built a certain rig, and you know, it's lit 
you know, the pylons being lit from the ship itself, the, the there's underlights, there's you know, like the registry and stuff. But actually, you are correct in a sense, a couple of the lights, especially on the nacelles, uh, don't actually come from a bulb. There's no practical way those lights can emanate from anywhere without magic. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and join in the conversation about your favourite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please do leave us a star rating and a written review at the same time. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and in most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd also like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, The Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Duncan and I would love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to get involved and do just that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. You can also find the network on Twitter at trekfm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. You can find Duncan and I on the Babel Conference as well, and you can find us both on Twitter Duncan at Barrett's Books and myself, Tony, at Black Hole Media. And you can also find me hosting my own podcast, the Xcast and X Files podcast, if you type that into Twitter and Facebook. So thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Primitive Culture. We'll be back soon to discuss more history, culture, and how Star Trek relates to it. You're blended already.